Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well, just a little housekeeping to do today. I'm recording this intro a few days after the atrocity in Christchurch, New Zealand, where 49 worshippers in two mosques were murdered. I suspect the death toll will rise because I think something like 40 people are still in critical condition. So no doubt this story is going to get worse, but it is certainly bad enough already. Now, I wasn't going to say much about it because everything I have to say really should go without saying. Obviously, this was a horrific act of terrorism. And the fact that it was directed at Muslims by an avowed fascist and white supremacist, and the whole thing appears to have been both inspired by and crafted for social media, this was essentially an atrocity designed as an internet meme, all of this is just a nightmare. And it certainly suggests that the problem of white nationalism is in fact a global one, And this massacre is certainly one ominous sign that it's getting worse. And, of course, white nationalism is an ideology that I utterly oppose. One would certainly hope that that last part could go without saying. The problem, however, is that in the aftermath of events like this, we have pornographers of grief and grievance who come out of the woodwork to smear anyone who has ever said a critical word about Islam. And they're intent upon silencing people, people like my friend Majid Nawaz, the Muslim reformer, or ex-Muslims and real feminists like Ayan Hirsi Ali, or Yasmin Muhammad, or Sarah Hader. And they're also intent upon silencing people like me and Bill Maher and any other prominent non-Muslim who has ever criticized the faith. And in some cases, I'm convinced these people are actually hoping to get us all killed. That's how sinister some of these efforts are. At a minimum, they're hoping to make our security concerns so onerous and so rational, frankly, that we just stop talking about these issues. And they're certainly hoping to get people fired and deplatformed wherever they can. Now, three of the most calculating of these smear artists are employed by the billionaire Pierre Omidyar over at his website, The Intercept. And here I'm talking about Mehdi Hassan, Murtaza Hussein, and Glenn Greenwald. In the last few days, Hassan and Hussein have taken to Twitter and have been circulating misleading half-quotes from me, stating that I'm responsible for the atrocity in Christchurch. To be clear, they're doing this knowing what my politics actually are. They know I oppose white nationalism, and Christian identitarianism, and Trumpism, and fascism, as much as anyone. I'm not sure whether Greenwald has singled me out by name yet, but On Twitter, you can see him defending the deranged students who accosted a pregnant Chelsea Clinton and berated her for her supposed responsibility in inspiring the Christchurch massacre. The effect of all this is to make violence in our world much more confusing 
and more dangerous to talk about. It is much harder to oppose real white supremacy and racism if you pretend to find these things everywhere, even where they manifestly do not exist. And then when you fundraise on the back of these pretensions, as many corrupt organizations are now doing, it only compounds the problem. It's very difficult not to see reasons for cynicism everywhere. I wasn't going to be baited into responding to any of this until I was successfully baited this morning by an opinion piece published in the New York Times, which names me and Jordan Peterson as the true sources of the Islamophobia that got 49 people killed in New Zealand. This article was written by Omar Aziz, and if you've ever listened to the episode of this podcast, ironically titled, The Best Podcast Ever, you'll know that Omar and I have a history. Omar once wrote a spectacularly dishonest criticism of my collaboration with Majid Nawaz, and being fairly new to podcasting at the time and more idealistic about the power of conversation than I now am, I invited him on the show to talk about it. And that episode was a disaster. And so I decided it was better not to release it. And I told Omer at the time I might not release it, which he seemed to accept. But I just thought the conversation was so toxic. It was a perfect distillation of the principle, which was so beautifully summarized by Brett Weinstein, that bad faith changes everything. That should be the mantra of our time. And Omer was arguing in bad faith. And if you listen to that podcast, especially to the last hour, you will notice that. But Omer being some kind of masochist, or actually under the delusion that he came off well in that podcast, decided to essentially blackmail me into releasing it. And he did this by publishing an article in Salon filled with lies about what had actually happened in the unreleased audio. So, for instance, he claimed that he destroyed me in debate, and that he had exposed my ignorance of Islam, as well as my racism and bloodlust. But, of course, none of these things happened. There was not a scintilla of truth to what he wrote in Salon. But I had to release the podcast to prove that. So I did. I have no idea why he wanted that audio released. Anyway, the New York Times has a short memory, or they have no idea who Omer is, or they simply don't care that they're publishing someone who has a history of lying extravagantly, even to his own disadvantage. So they published his take on the Christchurch massacre today, and he names me and Jordan Peterson as the sources of the anti-Muslim hatred that got 49 people killed. So let me just point out a few things here. First, I don't think there's anyone who is actually familiar with my work, who's listened to my conversations on the topic of Islam, with Majid Nawaz or Dia Khan or Sarah Hader or Ayan Hirsi Ali, or even with Douglas Murray, who's also getting smeared now, who thinks that I have ever been motivated by racism or bigotry in my criticism of Islam. The problem, of course, is that these types of smears aren't directed at people who are familiar with my work. They're designed to mislead people. And this is dangerous. On social media, people are now circulating lists of people who need to be, quote, eliminated. And these kinds of smears 
are calculated to inspire that. And it's simply a fact that the term Islamophobia was designed to confuse people and to make any criticism of the ideology of Islam seem indistinguishable from bigotry against Muslims as people. And the left has been utterly taken in by this. The New York Times has been utterly taken in by this. And the effect of all this is to make it much harder to oppose extremism, whether it comes from fascists on the right or from fascists within Islam. Now, our sanity as human beings depends on our being able to make these sorts of distinctions in an environment that allows for measured conversation. And the places where one can do that are disappearing. The fact that the New York Times published this allegation against me and Peterson is completely insane. As I said, I didn't want to get into any of this, and I certainly didn't want to strike a defensive note here. The reality is, is that 49 people were killed horribly, and many others were no doubt horribly injured, and many more may yet succumb to those injuries. But it seems like I needed to say something in response to what's been coming at me on social media and now in the real media, because it exemplifies just how unequipped we are socially at this moment to speak honestly about these problems. And now I believe the better part of wisdom is moving on. And as it turns out, the topic of today's podcast is the end of the world. So this is perhaps an appropriate preamble. Today I am speaking with Nick Bostrom. Nick is someone I've been hoping to get on the podcast for quite some time. He is a Swedish-born philosopher with a background in theoretical physics and computational neuroscience and logic and AI and many other interesting intersecting topics. But officially, he's a professor of philosophy at Oxford University, where he leads the Future of Humanity Institute. And this organization is a research center which is focused largely on the problem of existential risk. And today we get deep into his views on existential risk by focusing on three of his papers, which I'll describe in our conversation. We talk about what he calls the vulnerable world hypothesis, which gets us into many interesting tangents uh, with respect to the, the history of nuclear deterrence and the possible need for what he calls turnkey totalitarianism. We talk about whether we're living in a computer simulation. He's the father of the now famous simulation argument. We talk about the doomsday argument, which is not his, but it's one of these philosophical thought experiments that have convinced many people that we might be living close to the end of human history. We talk about the implications of there being extraterrestrial life out there in the galaxy and uh, many other topics, but all of it is focused on the question of whether humanity is close to the end of its career here or near the very beginning. And um, I hope you'll agree that the difference between those two scenarios is one of the more significant ones we can find. Anyway, I really enjoyed talking to Nick. I find his work fascinating and very consequential, and that's a good combination. 
And now I bring you Nick Bostrom. I am here with Nick Bostrom. Nick, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me. So uh, you are fast becoming, uh, or not too fast, it's been, been years now that I've been aware of your work, but you are becoming one of the most provocative philosophers I can think of. And really, it's, it's, just, it's wonderful to read your work. And I, I want to introduce you, but perhaps to begin with, I just, how do you view your work and what, what you focus on at this point? How do you summarize your interests as a philosopher? Well, that's always been a challenge for me. Broadly speaking, I'm interested in big picture questions for humanity and figuring out which direction is up and which is down. That is, out of all the things you can be pushing on or pulling on in the world, which ones would actually tend to make things better in expectation. Yeah, and then various kind of sub-questions that come out from that ultimate quest to figure out which direction we should be heading in. Yeah, so when I, when I think about your work, I see a concern that unifies much of it, certainly, with existential risk. And I don't know if this is a phrase that you have popularized or if it's, it's just derivative of your work, but how do you think of existential risk and, and why is it so hard for most people to care about? And it's, it's amazing to me that this is such an esoteric concern and, and you really have brought it into prominence. Yeah, it, 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 I introduced the concept in a paper I wrote back in the early 2000s the concept being that of a risk either to the survival of Earth-originating intelligent life or a risk that could permanently and drastically reduce our potential for desirable future developments. So, in other words, something that could permanently destroy the future. I mean, even that phrase, I mean, so you, you really have a, a talent for coming up with phrases that are arresting, and, and, and you know, it's such a simple one, it permanently destroy the future. You know, there, there are probably more people working in my local McDonald's than are thinking about the prospect of permanently destroying the future. How long have you been focused on, on this particular problem? And again, why is it, there's something bewildering about trying to export this concern to the rest of culture, even to very, very smart people who claim to be worried about things like climate change, why is existential risk still such an esoteric concern? Well, it's become less so over the last few years. There is now actually a community of folk around the rationalist community, the EA community, you know, various academic centers. and EA uh, is an effective uh, altruism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and, and about, yeah. About not, not just these, but, but kind of radiating out from these a uh, number of individuals that, that are quite interested in this. So I think the comparison to the McDonald's restaurant would no longer be true now. Maybe right. it was true. Several McDonald's. Years ago. Why it is? Well, I guess you could ask that or you could ask why it's no longer the case. I mean, I don't know that the default should be, if we're looking at academia, that questions receive attention in proportion to their importance. I, I think that's just kind of a poor model of what to expect from academic right. research. So one can ask why it's changed. I mean, on one level, you're asking people to care about the unborn if the time horizon is beyond their lives and the lives of their children, which, which it seems on its face probably harder than caring about distant strangers uh, who are currently alive. And, and we know we're already pretty bad at that. Is, is that a major variable here? Sure. Uh, it, it's an extreme case of a public good, right? So generally, 
in a simple model of the market economy, public goods tend to be undersupplied because the creator of them captures only a small fraction of the benefits. The global public goods are normally seen as the extreme of this. If, if all of humanity benefits from some activity or, or is harmed by some activity, as in maybe the case of global warming or something like that, then the incentives facing the individual producer are just very dissociated from their overall consequences. But with existential risks, it's even more extreme, actually, because it's a transgenerational good in the sense that all future generations are also impacted by our decisions concerning what we do about existential risks. And, and they are obviously not in a position in any direct way to influence our decisions. They can't reward us if we do things that are good for them. So right. if, if one thinks of, of, of human beings as selfish, one would expect the good of existential risk reduction to be undersupplied. Like you could imagine if somehow people could go back in time that future generations would be willing to like spend huge amounts of money to compensate our, us for our efforts to reduce X risk. But since you can't, uh, that, that transaction is, is not possible, then uh, there is this undersupply. So that, 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 that could be one way of, of uh, like explaining why there's relatively little. And, and there was something about what you said about it, it's harder to care. Like it, it's a little strange some, that, that caring should be something that requires effort. If, if one does care about it, it doesn't seem like it should be a straining thing to do. And if one doesn't care, then it's not clear why one should be, what, 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 what motive one would have for trying to strain to, to start caring. It's a framing problem in many cases, so that there's a certain set of facts, let's say the reality of human suffering in some distant country that you have never visited, you have no connections there, this information can just be transmitted to you about the reality of the suffering. And it transmitted one way, you find that you don't care, and transmitted another way, the reality of it and the, and the, and the analogy to your own life or the lives of your children can be made more salient. And so we know that we know, you know, through the work of someone like Paul Slovic, we know there are moral illusions here where people can be shown to care more about the fate of one little girl who's delivered to them in the form of a personalized story. And they'll care less about the fate of that same little girl plus her brother. And they'll care less still if you tell them about the little girl, her brother, and the 500,000 other children who are also suffering from a famine. And you just get this diminishment of altruistic impulse and the amount of money they're willing to give to charity and all the rest. And it's, it goes in the wrong direction. As you scale the problem, people care less. So we know we have some moral bugs in our, in our psychology. Yeah. So the original paper about existential risk made the point that from a certain type of ethical theory, it looks like existential risk reduction is a very important goal. If you have a broadly aggregative consequentialist philosophy, say if you're a utilitarian, hmm. and if you work the numbers out, the number of possible future generations, the number of individuals in each of those that could live very happy lives, then you multiply that together, and then it looks like even a very small chance in the probability that we will eventually achieve this would have a very high expected value. In fact, a higher expected value than uh, any other impacts that we might have in more direct ways on the world here and now. So that reducing existential risk by you know, one thousandth of one percentage point would be, from this utilitarian perspective, uh, worth more than eliminating world hunger or curing cancer. Now, that, of course, 
uh, says nothing about the question of whether this kind of utilitarian perspective is correct or is agreeable to us. But it just notes that that does seem to be an implication. I'm definitely a consequentialist of a certain kind. So, you know, I, I, we don't need to argue that point. But one thing that's interesting here, and this may be playing into it, is that there's a, there seems to be a clear asymmetry between how we value suffering and its mitigation and how we value the mere preemption of well-being or flourishing or positive states. So that I mean, suffering is is worse than pleasure or happiness is good. You know, I think if, if you told most people, here are two scenarios for the, how you can spend the rest of your day. You can spend it as you were planning to, living within the normal bounds of human experience, or I can give you one hour of the worst possible misery, followed by another hour of the deepest possible happiness. Would you like to sample the, the two extremes on the phenomenological continuum? I think most people would balk at this because we think we have a sense that that suffering is on, on some level, you know, in the limit is worse than any pleasure or happiness could be. And so we we look at the prospect of, let's say, you know, curing cancer and mitigating the suffering from that as being more important ethically than simply not allowing the door to close on future states of creativity and insight and beauty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one might want to decompose different ways in which that intuition could be produced. So one might just be that for us humans, as we are currently constituted, it's a lot easier to to create pain than pain than to create a corresponding degree of pleasure. We we might just evolutionarily be such that we have a kind of deeper bottom than we have a height. Mm. Uh, it, it, is, it might be possible if you think about it in biological term in a short period of time to in, introduce more damage to damage reproductive fitness more than you could possibly gain yeah. within the same amount of time. So if we are thinking about these vast futures, you want to probably factor that out in that you could re-engineer, say, human hedonic systems or the hedonic systems of whatever inhabitants would exist in this future so that they would have a much larger capacity for upside. Right. And it's not obvious that there would be an asymmetry there. Now, you might nevertheless think that given, in some sense, equal amounts of pleasure and pain, and it's a little unclear exactly what, what the metric is here, that there would nevertheless be some more basically ethical reason why one should place a higher priority on removing the negative. A lot of people have intuitions about equality, say in economic context, where, where helping the, the worst off is more important than, than further promoting the welfare of the best off. Maybe, maybe that's the source of, of some of those intuitions. I, actually, there's one other variable here, I think, which is that there is no victim or you know, beneficiary of the consequence of closing the door to the future. So if, if you ask someone, well, what would be wrong with the prospect of everyone dying painlessly in their sleep tonight, and there are no future generations, there's no one to be bereaved by that outcome. There's no one suffering the pain of the loss or the pain of, of the deaths even. So people are kind of at a loss for the place where the, the moral injury would land. Yeah, so I mean, that, that, that is a distinction within utilitarian frameworks between total utilitarians who think you basically count up all the good and subtract all the bad. 
and then other views that try to take a more uh, so-called person-affecting perspective, where what matters is what kind of happens to people, but coming into existence is not necessarily a benefit. And now I would say some kinds of existential catastrophe would have a, a, a continuing population of people who would be experiencing the bad. If you imagine, say, the world getting locked into some totalitarian, like really dystopian totalitarian regime, that, that you know, maybe there would be people living for a very long time, but just having much less good lives than could have existed. So right. in some scenarios of existential catastrophe, there uh, would still be inhabitants there. Yeah, no, it can, it, it, I think it's pretty clear that destroying the future could be pretty unpleasant for people who are along for the ride. Now, I'd like uh, just to harken back a, a few minutes ago, like on the general um, premise here. So I don't see it so much as a premise, this utilitarian view. I mean, in fact, I wouldn't really describe myself as a utilitarian. It, it more just pointing out the consequence. There are various mm. views about how we should reason about ethics. And there might be other things we care about as well, aside from ethics. And rather than directly trying to answer what do we have most reason to do all things considered, you might break it down and say, well, given this particular ethical theory, what do we have most reason to do, given this other value or this other goal we might have? And, and then, then at the end of the day, you might want to add all of that up again. But insofar as we are trying to uh, reason about our ethical obligations, I, I, I have kind of a normative uncertainty over different moral frameworks. And mm. so the way I would try to go about making decisions from a moral point of view would be to think I have this a moral parliament model. It's a kind of metaphor, but where you try to factor in the viewpoints of a number of different ethical theories, kind of in proportion to the degree to which you assign them probability. It's kind of interesting. When I'm out and about in, in the world, uh, I usually have to make the case for utilitarianism, or at least you should consider this perspective. Like people are scope insensitive. Uh, you should look at the numbers. If this thing has millions of people and this one only has hundreds of people being affected, clearly that. Uh, and, yet, and yet, when I'm, I'm back here at the headquarters, as it were, mm -hmm. uh, I, I usually am the one who has to kind of advocate against the utilitarian perspective because so many of my friends are so deeply dyed in the wool uh, utilitarians. Yeah. Uh, and so, so narrowly focused on X risk mitigation that. I feel that I'm always the uh, the odd one out. Well, you know, I would love to get into a conversation with you about metaethics some other time because I, you know, I I think your views about the limits of consequentialism would be fascinating to explore. But I have so much I want to talk to you about with respect to X risk and a few of your papers that um, I think let's just table that for another time. Um, and, and in fact, I don't even think we're going to be able to cover your book, Superintelligence. I mean, maybe if we have a little time at the end, we'll touch it. But I should just want to say that you know, this book was incredibly influential on many of us in arguing the case for there being a potential existential risk with respect to the development of artificial intelligence and you know, artificial general intelligence in particular. And so it's, you know, this is something, the reason why I wouldn't cover this with you for the, the entirety of this conversation is I've had several conversations on my podcast that have been deeply informed by your view. I mean, I've, I've had Stuart Russell on, I've had Eliezer Yudkowsky on, and basically every time I talk about AI, I consider what I say to be, you know, fairly derivative of your book, and I often remind people of that. So 
my audience will be will be familiar with your views on AI, even if they're not familiar with you. So if we have time, we'll get back to that. But what I really want to talk about are a few of your papers. The first is the vulnerable world hypothesis. Uh, maybe I'll just name the papers here that I hope we'll cover. The vulnerable world. The second is, are you living in a computer simulation? And the third is, where are they? Which is your analysis of the, the Fermi problem, asking where, where is the rest of the, the intelligent life in the galaxy? Let's start with the vulnerable world hypothesis. What do you mean by that phrase? Well, the hypothesis is, roughly speaking, that there is some level of technological development at which the world gets destroyed by default, as it were. So then what does it mean to get destroyed by default? I define something I call the semi-anarchic default condition, which is a condition in which there are a wide range of different actors with a wide range of different human recognizable motives. But then, more importantly, two conditions hold. One is that there is no very reliable way of resolving global coordination problems. And the other is that we don't have a very extremely reliable way of preventing individuals from committing actions that are extremely strongly disapproved of by a great majority of other people. Maybe it's better to come at it through a a metaphor. Yeah, the urn. The urn Mm -hmm. metaphor. So you can kind of... you can kind of think of the history of technological discovery as the process of pulling balls out of a giant urn, the urn of creativity. And we reach in and we get an idea out. And then we reach in and get another out. And we've extracted throughout history a great many of these balls. And the net effect of this has been hugely beneficial, I would say. This is why we now uh, sit in our air-conditioned offices and struggle not to eat too much rather than to try to get enough to eat in large parts of the world. But what if in this ball, in in this urn, there is a a black ball in there somewhere? Like some, is there some possible technology that could be such that whichever civilization uh, discovers it invariably gets destroyed? Just to add a little color here, Nick. So so in in your paper, you refer to this as the urn of inventions and we have been, as you say, pulling balls out as quickly as we can get our hands on them. And on some level, the scientific ethos is really just a matter of pulling balls out as fast as you can and making sure that everybody knows about them. We want that we have this norm of transparency in science. And we have pulled out thus far only white or gray balls. And the white balls are the ones, or the technologies or the memes or the norms or the social institutions that just have good consequences. And the gray ones are norms and memes and institutions and, in most cases, technology that has mixed results or that can be used for good or for ill. And, you know, nuclear energy is is a classic case where we can power our cities with it, but we also produce fantastic amounts of pollution that's difficult to deal with. And in the in the worst case, we build weapons. So I just want to give a little more context to this this analogy. Yeah, and I guess most technologies are in, in some sense double-edged, but maybe the positive predominate. I think there might be some technologies that are mainly negative if you think of, I don't know, nerve gases or other yeah. tools. But, but what we haven't so far done is extract a black ball, right? One that is so harmful that it destroys the civilization that discovers it. 
And um, what if there is such a black hole in the urn, though? I mean, we can ask about how likely that is to be the case. We can also look at what, what is our current strategy with respect to this possibility. And it seems to me that currently our strategy with respect to the possibility that the urn might contain a black ball is, is simply to hope that it doesn't. And so we keep extracting balls as fast as we can. We have become quite good at that, but we have no ability to put balls back into the urn. We, we cannot uninvent our inventions. So the first part of this paper tries to identify what are the types of ways in which the world could be vulnerable, the types of ways in which there could be some possible black ball technology that we might invent. And the first and most obvious type of way the world could be vulnerable is if there is some technology that greatly empowers individuals to cause sufficiently large quantities of destruction. Motivate this with a, or illustrate it by means of a historical counterfactual. We, in the last century, discovered how to split the atom and release the energy that is contained within some of the energy that's contained within the, the nucleus. And it turned out that, uh, that this is quite difficult to do. You need special materials. You need plutonium or highly enriched uranium. So really only states can do this kind of stuff to produce nuclear weapons. But what if it had turned out that there had been an easier way to release the energy of the atom? What if you could have made a nuclear bomb by you know, baking sand in the microwave oven or something like that? So, so that, then that might well have been the end of, of, of human civilization in that you, you, it, it's hard to see how you could have cities, let us say, if, if anybody who wanted to could destroy millions of people. So, so maybe we were just lucky. Now, now we know, of course, that it is physically impossible to create uh, an atomic detonation by baking sand in a microwave oven. But before you actually did the relevant nuclear physics, how, how could you possibly have known how it would turn out? Well, well let's just spell out that because I, you know, I, I want to conserve everyone's intuitions as we go on this harrowing ride to, uh, <laughs> to your terminus here, because the punchline of this paper is fairly startling when you get to what the the remedies are. So why is it that civilization could not endure the prospect of what you call easy nukes? If it were that easy to create a, a Hiroshima-level blast or beyond, why is it just a, a foregone conclusion that that would mean the end of cities and perhaps the end of most things we recognize? I think foregone conclusion is maybe a little too strong. It depends a little bit on the exact parameters we plug in. I and mean, the intuition is that in, in a large enough population of people, like amongst every population with millions of people, there will always be a few people who, for whatever reason, would like to kill a million people or more if they could, whether they are just crazy or, or evil or they have some weird ideological doctrine or they're trying to extort other people or threaten other people that just just humans are very diverse and in a large enough set of people that will for, for practically any desire you, you can specify there will be somebody in there that has that so if each of those destructively inclined people would be able to cause a sufficient amount of destruction then everything would get destroyed yeah now if one if one imagines this actually playing out in history, then to, to, to tell whether all of civilization really would get destroyed or some horrible catastrophe short of that would happen instead would depend on various things, like just 
what kind of nuclear weapon would would it be like a, a, a small kind of Hiroshima type of thing or a thermonuclear bomb? How easy would it be? Could literally anybody do it like in five minutes or would it take some engineer working for half a year? And so depending on exactly the what what values you pick for those and some other variables, right. you, you might get like scenarios ranging from from very bad to kind of existential catastrophe. But the, the, the point is just to illustrate that there, there historically have been these technological transitions where we have been lucky in that exactly. the destructive capability we discovered were hard to to wield. You know, and maybe a plausible way in which this kind of uh, very highly destructive capability could become easy to wield in the future would be through developments in biotechnology that maybe makes it easy to create designer viruses and so forth right. that doesn't don't require high amounts of energy or special difficult materials and so forth. And, and there you might have an even stronger case. Like so, with a nuclear weapon. Like one nuclear weapon can only destroy one city, right? Uh, where the viruses and stuff potentially can spread. So yeah, I mean, and we should remind people that we're we're in an environment now where people talk with some degree of flippancy about the prospect of every household one day having something like a desktop printer that can print DNA sequences, right? That everyone becomes their own bespoke molecular biologist and you you can just print your own medicine at home or your your own gen, genetic intervention at home and this stuff really is you know the recipe in the, under those conditions the recipe to weaponize the the 1918 flu could just be sent to you like a pdf it's not without beyond the bounds of plausible sci-fi that we could be in a condition where it really would be within the power of one nihilistic or you know otherwise ideological person to destroy the lives of millions and even billions in the wrong case yeah or send us a pdf or you could just download it from the internet so exactly. the, the, yeah. the full genomes of the number of highly virulent organisms are in the public domain and, uh, and just ready to download so yeah so i mean we, we could talk more about that I, I think that i would rather see a future where dna synthesis was a service provided by a few places in the world where it would be able, if, if, if the need arose, to exert some control, some screening, yeah. rather than something that every lab needs to have its own separate little machine. Yeah, so that's, that, these, these are examples of type one vulnerability, like where the problem really arises from individuals becoming too empowered in their ability to create massive amounts of harm. Now, so there are other ways in which the world could be vulnerable that are slightly more subtle, but I think also worth bearing in mind. So these have to do more about the way that technological developments could change the incentives that different actors face. We, we can again return to the nuclear history case for an illustration of this. And, and actually, this is maybe the closest to a black ball we've gotten so far with thermonuclear weapons and the big arms race during the Cold War led to something like 70,000 warheads being on hair trigger alert. So it looks loud, like with, with, when we can see some of the archives of this history that have recently opened up, that there were a number of close calls. And the world actually came quite close to the brink on, on several occasions. And, and we might have been quite lucky to get through. It might not have been that we were in such a stable situation uh, it, it rather might have been that this was a kind of 
slightly blackballish technology and we just had enough luck to get through. But you could imagine it could have been worse. You could imagine properties of this technology that would have created stronger incentives, say, for a first strike, so that you would have crisis instability. If it had been easier, let us say, in a first strike to take out all the adversaries' nuclear weapons, then it might not have taken a lot uh, in, in a crisis situation to just have enough fear that you would have to strike first for fear that the adversary otherwise would do the same to you. Yeah. Remind people that in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the people who were closest to the action felt that the odds of an exchange had been something like a coin toss, it was something like 30 to 50%. And what you're envisioning is a situation where what you describe as safe first strike, which is, you know, there's just no reasonable fear that you're not going to be able to annihilate your enemy, provided you strike first, that would be a, a far less stable situation. And it's also, it's, it's also forgotten that the status quo of mutually assured destruction was actually a step towards stability. I mean, there was before the Russians had, or the Soviets had their own arsenals, there was a greater you know, game theoretic concern that we would be more tempted to use ours because nuclear deterrence wasn't a thing yet. Yeah, so some degree of stabilizing influence, although, of course, maybe at the expense of the outcome being even worse, if yeah. both sides are destroyed, then a safe first strike might just be one side being destroyed. Right. But yeah. And so if, if it had been possible, say, with one nuclear warhead to wipe out enemies' nuclear warheads within a wider radius, then it's actually the case. Or if it had been easier to detect nuclear um, submarines so that you could be more confident that you had actually you know, been able to target all of the other side's nuclear capability, then that, that could have resulted in a more unstable arms race, one that would, with a sort of higher degree of certainty, result in uh, the weapons being used. And, and you can consider other possible future ways in which, say, the world might find itself locked into arms race dynamics, where it's not that anybody wants to destroy the world, but it might just be very hard to come to an agreement that avoids the arms being built up and then used in a crisis. Nuclear weapon reduction treaties, you know, there are concerns about verification, but in principle, you can kind of have like nuclear weapons are quite big and they use very special materials. There might be other military technologies where even if both sides agree that they wanted to just ban this military technology, it might just the nature of the technology it might be such that it would be very difficult or impossible to enforce a ban mm. that, that that could make. So so again, we reach into the air and we just hope that uh, the future weapons technologies will not be such like they are like like the, the thermonuclear weapons or or maybe worse that we don't get more of those. So that that's another type of vulnerability. And then the the third and and last of the major types is where similarly you have a change in incentives, except it's not that there are a small number of very powerful actors that face incentives to cause vast destruction, but instead a large number of weak actors that each are incentivized to take some action that individually are maybe quite negligible, but added up becomes damaging. So here, maybe the best illustration would be global warming where a lot of individuals face incentives, the convenience of using fossil fuels to drive cars, for example, 
uh, that, that individually contribute trivially to climate change. But if billions of people are doing it, then the, the sum total might be significant. And, and here you could again counterfactually imagine that the situation could have been a lot worse than it is. The climate sensitivity could have been much greater. So that's say the same amount of emissions that we've produced to date, instead of producing an expected, say, three degrees of warming over a hundred year timescale, what, what if that had been 15 degrees instead? Or, or what if, say, alternative energy sources had been much more expensive than they are? So we would have been more strongly incentivized to continue to use fossil fuels. And, and again, here, yeah, we, we reach into the urn, we create a lot of inventions, and we hope that there won't be some uh, discovery that just sort of happened to create incentives for a lot of individuals to take actions that benefit each individual, but that have this slight negative global externality that adds up sufficiently to doom our civilization. Mm. Let's take a moment to linger over this phrase, bad incentives, because this is a meme that virtually everyone has in their head. It's a problem that I continually worry about, but it's it's worth defining because it's it's a surprisingly deep problem, and it's really the, the engine of arguably most of our problems at this point, because it's, it's the condition under which normal people with normal motivations reliably do bad or dangerous things. And it's the, it's the reliable part that is so destructive. It's a system that is selecting for behavior that no one would agree to or countenance if, you know, done with that purpose or, or, or if it could be easily avoided. But because the incentives are wrong, you have a, what becomes in the end a, a massive experiment or expression of sadism and masochism. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be that anybody actually takes pleasure in the bad outcome. I mean, exactly, like with yeah. global warming, maybe everybody would prefer that, uh, that the CO2 levels remained at their original level. It's just, I could drive my car downtown and it's really not going to make any noticeable difference and, and I get to where I want to go more quickly. So there's an externality, right? That this an effect of somebody's action is harms or benefits um, are not incurred by the person taking the action. Well, or, or even if it is, I mean, the, the incentives, as long as you are just discounting the well-being of your future self steeply enough, you can be doing the thing that I mean, in the case of global warming, many of us will be around, or at least our children will, will be around, to suffer the consequences, provided we believe this problem exists, you know, and can be motivated by that understanding. Still, we, we so steeply discount the prospect of future suffering, it seems, that it provides very little motivation. Yeah, that can be these sort of temporal externalities. But, it, but even if you were time neutral in your preference function, you would still only it suffers, say, one seventh billionth of the consequences, mm. if, simplistically. Like the, the, right. the other parts of the harm would be incurred by the other people around on the planet, right? So whereas you kind of gain 100% of the benefit of you right. driving your car to the city center. But yeah, so it looks like global warming as it actually is, is not one of these effects of a black ball, uh, our use of fossil fuels, com internal combustion. But, but we could we might easily imagine that it... it, it just the dynamics of the climate could have been a bit worse, or the economic uh, characteristics of alternative technologies could have been worse, and then then that could have been could have been a black ball. Yeah. And so, yeah, the paper really doesn't really. It, the, the main purpose of the paper is not to to try to show that there is a black ball in the urn that the vulnerable world hypothesis is true. It, it more 
looks at ways in different ways in which it could be true and then considers what would follow from that. And then each person can kind of make their own judgment about the probability that the vulnerable world hypothesis is true. I, I think we don't really know for sure. And right. I mean, it seems fairly plausible. The world is vulnerable at some level of technological development, but I mean, might also not be. Well, and the, there's the added point that you've referenced, but I, I, I want to spell out is that we're continually finding ourselves in the position of people who are getting lucky and seemingly disposed to continue to rely merely on the prospect of getting lucky again. I mean, we're not actually acting as though there could be or might be or likely is a black ball in the urn. We just keep reaching in and grabbing one and pulling it out and seeing what it does for us. Yeah, that that's it. And, and hoping for the best. Yeah. I mean, this is very much the ethos in across like academia and in the sciences, like Harvard's motto is veritas, truth. And the implicit assumption there, I guess, is that truth is good, more truth is better, finding out and disseminating truth and explaining truth is always and everywhere good and should be encouraged as much as possible. And it's, I mean, that, that's actually a non-obvious assumption if you start to think about it. It might be that the net effect of being more open to free investigation over the last few hundred years has been vastly beneficial on balance. But I mean, just how strong evidence is that, that this will continue to be true into the indefinite future? Maybe not very strong evidence. Certainly it doesn't seem strong evidence against the claim that there could be pockets where there are exceptions to this, specific technologies or specific ideas mm. where the harms would outweigh the benefits. It's worth remembering how remembering a few episodes wherein it was revealed how cavalier we could be in rolling these particular dice. Um, you, you reference the Trinity and, and Castle Bravo tests in the paper, and then you come up with a counterfactual you call Castle Bravissimo. You want to run through that for a moment? Yeah, so the Trinity test is the first detonation of a nuclear device in the uh, Los Alamos uh, Manhattan project that put it together and and, and eventually... Uh, they detonated it, and and at at some point before they did this, there was some concern, like, hey, hey, what what if we like with these extreme energies, could it could it like ignite the atmosphere? Could it cause a runaway chain reaction, where maybe the the, the nitrogen in in the atmosphere would undergo some kind of fission process? And they 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 took it seriously enough. Like Robert Oppenheimer, who was the scientific director of Manhattan Project went immediately to his superior and discussed this and he assigned several of his physicists to like do calculations on this and and they looked into it and fermi worked on it the famous uh, enrico fermi uh, and and they they came up with the conclusion that no nah, it, it actually it, it won't cause a chain reaction in the atmosphere in, in the original report they ended with well uh, it would be good to do some more research on this <laughs> but at least at the first cut it seems like it couldn't happen and and anyway, so they they went they did the uh, Trinity test, and it turned out they were right. It didn't cause a chain reaction in the atmosphere, which would have caused the whole Earth to blow up, basically. So so that was good. And then a few years later, uh, further research and development in nuclear weapons, they were uh, you know working towards the fusion bomb. So an early version of that was going to be tested in the Castle Bravo test, and and they did some yield calculation, and. I think estimated that it would yield about five megaton, and turns out that they overlooked one reaction pathway, and the 
actual yield was about three times larger. And so this caused uh, various inhabited islands to be uh, irradiated by radioactive fallout. A Japanese fisher boat that was in, in the neighborhood got, got sort of uh, irradiated, causing one Japanese sailor to die, causing an international incident. Most of the instruments that were designed to measure the effects of this blast were actually destroyed by the blast. It was like a huge fiasco uh, because they had overlooked an important pathway that led them to radically underestimate the explosive yield. Now, so the point I make in the paper is that uh, it's kind of good that the uh, calculation they got wrong was the calculation of, about the yield in Castle Bravo and that it wasn't the calculation about whether the nuclear blast would ignite the uh, atmosphere as in the Trinity test. And uh, yeah, and so the point, I guess, is that uh, there is like a limit to how confident we can be that our models of what will happen when we uh, experiment with new phenomena or put them together in novel ways will work as we intend. Right. So let's talk about the remedies here, because this is where your paper becomes fairly startling. You list four, and, and the first two are essentially non-starters. Uh, I'll, I'll just read through them. I, I, I don't can't recall whether this is your wording or not, but the first is to just restrict technological development. Just pull the brakes here, and we can talk about whether that's at all plausible, but it, it seems not. Uh, the second is to ensure that there are no bad people, and if there are bad people, to modify their preferences durably enough so that you can be safe in the presence of these destructive technologies indefinitely, should we pull a black ball. The third is what you call extreme policing, and the fourth is effective global governance. And it seems that, that as I said, the first two are non-starters. I don't know if you want to spend any time on them, but some combination of the second two, at a minimum, leads to something that you describe as a, a high-tech panopticon and requires that, in some sense, in, 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 the, in the happiest possible case, we have the ability to initiate what you call turnkey totalitarianism, where we just can very quickly control our neighbors and intrude upon their behavior. Uh, and this requires a level of surveillance that, you know, though we all have tracking devices in our pockets that we can make phone calls on, few of us can scarcely imagine being in our, in our future. So let's talk about what you see as a, a remedy, given the assumption that there is a black ball in the urn of invention, and we might one day pull it out. Yeah, so conditional on the vulnerable world hypothesis being true, then it looks al almost logically that there are these four possible ways of trying to fix the situation that you mentioned. The first two of which, as you say, look rather unpromising, like restricting technological development or ensuring that they just aren't bad actors. So that then leaves, uh, unfortunately, the last two, extremely effective preventive policing or effective global governance. So if we take the extremely effective preventive policing first, uh, it designed for the cases, especially the type one vulnerabilities, where the problem is that a great many individuals each get access to the capability of causing massive destruction, like the uh, baking sand in the microwave oven to create a nuclear warhead or some equivalent to that using biotechnology or some as yet unanticipated technological discovery. 
it looks like the only way that such a world could be stable would be if you had the ability to continuously in real time monitor what everybody were doing and the ability to reliably intervene if somebody started to do the dangerous thing. And exactly what that would require depends on the, 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 technol- the, 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 the action that you would want to prevent. But to have a fully general ability to that would seem to require extreme surveillance. Of, of course, that brings with it its own uh, set of risks and so forth. But, uh, at this point, there is no policy prescription. It, it just notes that if we're unlucky, the world could contain a vulnerability and it could be such that the only way to, to, to stabilize the world in those circumstances could be extreme, continuous, ubiquitous surveillance combined with rapid intervention capability. You spend the better part of a page, I think, on what extreme surveillance could look like, and, and you paint a fairly rosy picture of some of the possibilities here. It's not, it's not as purely a page ripped out of Aldous Huxley as, as we might imagine. Do you want to talk about what the best-case scenario would be for extreme surveillance? Well, I don't know if the best case scenario, I'm glad you find it rosy. I said, like, everybody's fitted with a freedom tag, which would be some wearable surveillance color that always records everything around it. I think a lot of people would find this rather dystopian. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it's definitely dystopian, but it, it, it can be painted in terms of the layers of, of anonymity and protection we put into it and the, the possible upside to it. I mean, for instance, the fact that you, if you're being surveilled in this way, your risk of you know dying of cardiac arrest goes way down because you can have the good people also responding to your medical emergencies uh, as well. So there's there are other things we might want to add. I mean, just to jump to the punchline here, the net effect on me of reading this essay was pretty uncanny because if you had asked me before reading it, you know how I would view the prospect of extreme surveillance and again, what you call turnkey totalitarianism, you know, this is, you know, that would be synonymous with, you know, everything I don't want to have happen in human society in the future on some level, except once you get led down this path of acknowledging the prospect of the vulnerable world hypothesis is true, and that the only condition under which civilization could be stable is something like this, well, then it it flips everything around and it begins to make it seem like any creep toward totalitarian surveillance has a a silver lining, right? It's like, it, because again, it's the, the, the only condition under which civilization can survive. And so it's in the context of that epiphany, when if you give me some positive gloss on, you know, having the state always have at least AI access to the information about what I'm doing with my hands at all moments, if you give me some benefit that uh, I get out of that, it's it's a, it's a happy surprise. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, I do, I do think that's like a, a, a fairly substantial argument on the side in favor of moving towards a, a more transparent society. This this possibility that the vulnerable world hypothesis could be true in in one of those ways that would require that capability for the world to survive. I mean, there there is maybe it's a little tangent, but I mean, I could imagine some other reasons for favoring surveillance. You could imagine that it, it would make it easier to keep track of people's past behavior so that the, the scoundrels and cheaters would be found out and the, the good people uh, might more readily rise to the top. And maybe if, if bad people knew that any attempt to uh, cheat and harm others would be discovered, maybe a lot of them would just 
not try to do that in the first place. And you could imagine social dynamics shifting into some more desirable equilibrium, but but we don't know. It, it could also shift into some less desirable equilibrium where there is a kind of inescapable orthodoxy. Or I think we have we don't have the kind of social science that would that with the predictive power to say what would happen if you started to change some of these fundamental parameters of uh, social interaction. If if you had a perfect lie detection apparatus, if if you had the ability to monitor what everybody was doing all the time and analyze that data, if if you had you could you could you could imagine various technologies that would make it that would basically change the rules that govern human interaction. And I, I don't think we can really predict very accurately what would happen. We we know in the past technological changes have had big uh, effects on political systems, like writing, maybe enabled the administration of states. You could like record who'd pay their taxes and so forth. Of course, the gunpowder kind of helped end the feudal era. The printing press inaugurated a, a period of religious wars that lasted a century and had a lot of other. And so it seems quite plausible if you start to tweak with some of these things, things could change for the better or for the worse in unexpected ways. But but anyway, wherever one stands on on this trade-off between with the, the the risks and downsides of increased surveillance, uh, which are, which are I guess fairly obvious, and and the possible upsides, before I think th- this would add a reason to be in favor of it. So maybe it should shift people a little bit in that direction. It, it makes no claim of whether you would be all things considered in favor or not. Right. But but it's like one more reason to add to the pro side. How do you view the the variable of global governance? Well, so that's the uh, the the fourth possible remedy. So for some of the other types of ways in which the world could be vulnerable, where the problem in particular is the incentives facing big states, like kind of worse forms of nuclear arms races, maybe with different technologies, they they are like perfect micro surveillance wouldn't really help, but maybe. Each state could surveil its own citizens perfectly, but that wouldn't really help, say, the Soviet Union and U.S. of A to have avoided the Cold War. So, so there, instead, what it seems you would need is some reliable mechanism whereby uh, great powers could, you know, r- have a reliable way of avoiding harmful conflict with one another. So that that could take the form of a some sufficiently strong democratic world government, or it could take the form of just one side being strong enough that it could like just lay down the law if it really needed to, like a global hegemon. Uh, maybe there are other possibilities, but um, a, a world with very many different top-level, very strong players that is, is a world in which there continuously exists the possibility that it seems they will uh, find themselves locked in some kind of conflict, a game of chicken, some arms race or something else that maybe they both can see will lead to catastrophe, but where they are incapable of uh, unilaterally climbing out of that. Right. So how do you view, for practical steps toward a remedy or toward taking this concern seriously, you know, if you could wave a magic wand and implement some changes, what would you want to see happen at the level of governance or institutions or laws? Or Well, I mean, in, in terms of Actual policy that want to, I, th- I think I would just pick some much smaller scale, more localized things. So, for example, with DNA synthesis machines, maybe one could try to get a, a international regulatory framework on that. Maybe you could have, say, for 
the DIY biohacking community. Some countries already have uh, licensing requirements to work with certain forms of biotech. Maybe, maybe that could be spread to other countries. Maybe there could be more background checks of individuals working in these labs. And maybe uh, as, as capabilities expand, maybe, maybe some subset of people working with particularly dangerous technologies would be under more continuous surveillance, perhaps. I, th I think the, um, that it would shift one's views on in, in, in favor of, well, surveillance scenarios and global governance scenarios relative to where they were before. But of course, there are many other strong considerations that one also would need to take into account. Mm. I mean, I, th I think broadly speaking, it would be desirable quite independently of the vulnerable world hypothesis if, 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 if we could find more robust institutions for global cooperation than, than we have. The, I mean, the history of, of, of mankind is kind of pockmarked with the scars of wars and conflict. Yeah. Right? Thousands of years we've been like devoting a significant fraction of our energies and resources to killing one another. Yeah. If we could escape that, that would seem to be a fairly robustly good thing. Now, exactly how you move closer to that is then a complicated question where probably different people's political biases would begin to like largely shape what they think would be the best path there. But, but I think the goal could be quite easily recognized, like a more peaceful and loving world. And, and, and maybe one where, where that cooperative attitude was kind of entrenched in some kind of institutional framework could be maybe pretty robustly good. Yeah. And, and if, if the goal of having a peaceful and loving world sounds too effete to you, 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 we can just take the other side, which is a status quo of our continually running the same operating system with respect to conflict and tribalism but in the presence of more and more powerful weapons, uh, it seems like a bad recipe for survival. Yeah, so, so the badness of conflict and the badness of war is to a significant degree, I think, maybe parameterized by technologies available at that particular time. And so there is the risk that, I mean, I think if, even if it didn't get worse, just the war has been sufficiently bad, I think, over the last hundred years that it would be well worth trying to prevent more from occurring. It's kind of a, it's like we have a short memory. So if you look at the efforts towards uh, strengthening global governance, like after World War I, people said, wow, this was so horrible. How we couldn't possibly have guessed a bad war could be. But now we know. Now for sure, we're going to make sure it's never going to happen again. And then uh, a few years later, it's like, ah, I can't really be bothered. And then comes World War II, bam. Okay, the League of Nations was not. Now we're going to have the United Nations. We're going to make sure it's going to be peace and prosperity. And then now uh, people have kind of forgotten that. And I'm sure if there were another world war, then there would be, again, like some big surge of enthusiasm for trying to put a stop to it. But uh, memories fade. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the imagination of, of what could lie ahead is quite limited, and we are busy with other things. So I, I want to pivot to your next paper, which is a very different consideration, although it has the same ethical concern at bottom, which is existential risk or the prospects of our own survival. And uh, this is, are you living in a computer simulation, which you, I believe you wrote in 2003 or thereabouts? I think that's when it was published. I think I wrote it a couple of years earlier, mm. maybe, or some version of it. Perhaps you can explain the argument. Why, why can you even entertain the prospect that we're in a simulation? Oh, yeah, the simulation argument. It's a kind of probabilistic argument that purports to impose a constraint on what you can coherently believe about the future and your place in the universe and 
it tries to show that one of three propositions is true. The first is that there is a very um, universal pattern where all, virtually all civilizations at our current stage of technological development go extinct before they reach technological maturity. The second proposition, the second alternative, as it were, is that there is a very, very strong convergence among all technologically mature civilizations. They all lose interest in creating what I call ancestor simulations. These would be computer simulations, detailed computer simulations of people like their historical predecessors, detailed enough that the simulated creatures would be conscious. And, and the third proposition, the third alternative, is that we are almost certainly living in a computer simulation. And so the, the gist of the argument can be, I think, grasped without looking at any formulas. It, it basically, think about, let's suppose the first proposition is false, so that some non-trivial fraction of civilizations at our stage reach technological maturity eventually. And suppose, furthermore, that the second proposition is also false, so non some non-trivial fraction of those technologically mature civilizations use some of the resources for the purpose of creating ancestor simulations. You, you can then show that the number of people with our kinds of experiences that would be living inside these ancestor simulations would just be vastly greater than the number of people with our kinds of experiences that would be living in unmediated original histories. And so the vast majority of people with your kind of experiences would be simulated rather than non-simulated. And conditional on that, I claim, you should think you're almost certainly one of the simulated ones. So if you reject the first two propositions, you would have to accept the third. And then that shows that at least one of them is true. So the disjunct is true. That, that's the structure of the argument. And then we, we can kind of go into uh, an, any component of this. Yeah. Well, so, so let me uh, reprise part of that and, and uh, add this other piece, which is, which is relevant to our local case, because what, what you're saying is that if we have, I mean, you, you can talk about you know civilizations elsewhere in the galaxy, but you can also just talk about the future of our own civilization. I mean, if we, if we live on for billions of years, you know, if our descendants in whatever form they exist continue to thrive for a very long time, we will almost certainly build simulations of our ancestors and these simulations, these simulated ancestors will vastly outnumber the actual ancestors, and therefore you're more likely to be a simulation than a real ancestor. And therefore, and this is the sort of the added point that connects it to all that we've been talking about, if we're not living in a simulation, then a, a post-human future seems very unlikely. That's, that's the kind of riding. Well, unless it is one where the second proposition holds true, whether it's this universal convergence towards just losing interest in creating right, simulations. Right. There's an assumption that we would continue to, some number of post-human beings would simulate and that these simulations would be far more numerous than real worlds. Yeah. So, so there's a sort of empirical premise that comes in that maybe we should expand on a little bit, which is this idea that I mature civilization, even by using only a tiny fraction of its resources, could produce astronomical numbers of ancestor simulations. So this, this comes from a comparison of between an estimate of the kind of computing power that a technologically mature civilization would be able to master by converting planets into structures optimized for computing, on the one hand, and on the other hand, estimates of 
the amount of computing power required to simulate one human brain and, and therefore to simulate all human brains that have existed. And, and obviously we don't know the exact values for these variables, but we can, we have a lower bound on the amount of computing power that a mature civilization would have. And we can estimate roughly the amount of computing power it would take to simulate human history, human experiences. And we find that these two differ by a, a vast number of orders of magnitude such that, yeah, using 1% of the compute power of one planetary-sized computer, even just for one minute, would enable you to create, I forget the exact number, but maybe thousands or millions and millions of runs of all of human history. So, so even if our estimates are slightly off, it's still a very robust conclusion that if some non-trivial fraction of mature civilizations use some non-trivial fraction of the resources for this purpose, then the simulated ones would vastly outnumber the non-simulated ones. Mm. So it's a probabilistic argument that has a few assumptions in it, but you know, granted those assumptions, it's kind of a straight assessment of the, of the probabilities. But the, the, the probability, the use of probability here seems fishy to many people. And, and you point out in the paper that it seems akin to the doomsday argument, which, I mean, I, I was first introduced to the, the doomsday argument in John Leslie's book, titled The End of the World, which was published about 20 years ago or so. And I think he published it first in a paper, which you reference in, the, in your paper. And then it originally derived, I think, from a, the, the astrophysicist Brandon Carter. Maybe we should just summarize the doomsday argument and you can articulate why you think the, the flaws that people believe they've perceived in the doomsday argument don't really apply to the simulation argument. Yeah, okay. So the doomsday argument is a kind of an interesting piece of reasoning. Like a lot of people, when, when they first, it kind of became popularized maybe in the mid-90s or so. And uh, the, the general reaction was, there got to be something wrong about this argument. Like, it's interesting, it's gotta, but the conclusion just can't follow from those premises. there got to be something wrong. But then when, when people tried to say what was wrong, they all came up with different answers, and a lot of them didn't work. But here, here is the argument. So. Actually, again, we can resort to urns to uh, help illustrate the, the reasoning. This time, though, imagine that the, uh, the balls in the urn don't have different colors, but they are numbered. So we have some urn uh, with maybe 10 balls numbered 1, 2, 3, up to n ball number 10. Okay, And then we have another urn also filled with balls, but this one has a million balls in it, numbered 1, 2, 3, 4, up to 1 million. Now let's suppose that one of these urns is picked at random and put in front of you. And you have to guess how, how many balls does this urn contain? Is it a 10-ball urn? And so, so what, what probability would you give at this point? You say 50-50, right? You don't know which urn it is. There are two urns. 50% chance that this is the 10-ball urn. And now let's suppose you reach into the urn and you extract one ball and you look at the number of that ball and it's ball number seven. At this point, you get new information, right? It's, it's vastly more likely that you would find such a low-numbered ball if, if there are only 10 balls in the urn than if there are a million. So you now update and say, well, this is almost certainly the 10-ball urn. And Bayes' theorem tells you how to do that. OK, so so far, it's just uncontroversial standard like elementary probability theory. Now, the, the doomsday argument is that there, this is actually analogous to our situation with respect to possible futures. So 
uh, instead of these two hypotheses, these two urns with different number of balls, you now have two different hypotheses about how long the human species will last. Maybe one says that we will go extinct after the total number of humans that have ever lived will be 200 billion. And maybe another hypothesis says that there will be 200 trillion humans before we go extinct. And corresponding to the uh, observation of pulling out ball number seven, you have now, according to the doomsday argument, the observation that you yourself, your birth rank, your uh, order in the sequence of all humans that have been born is you know, roughly uh, number 100 billion. That, that, that's more or less how many people have come before you. Right, which is, which is in fact the case for us. Again, right similar to the, the case with the urns, you have some prior probability of how likely the world is to end soon when there has only been 200 billion humans or, or, or later when there will have been 200 trillion. Let, let's suppose you, know, you think it's 10% that will end soon and 90% that we will survive much longer. And then when you reflect on the fact that you have such a low birth rank that you pulled out ball number seven, you then are supposed to update in favor of the doom soon hypothesis. The, the, uh, the reasoning being roughly, it's much more likely that you, you would be at number uh, 100 billion if there are only 200 billion in total than if there are 200 trillion in total. Right. Like being uh, number 100 billion, if there are 200 billion, you're just somewhere in the middle, perfectly normal birth rank, but it's kind of be weird to be that early on if, if the human species were going to contain so many more people in the future. So, so that, that's kind of the, so that, then there's a little bit more to it. There's a little bit of argumentation in favor of the idea that we actually should assign probabilities more or less as if we were randomly sampled from the set of all people that will ever have lived. Mm. And, and it looks like you need some assumption roughly like that. I call it the self-selection, the self-sampling assumption. If, if you're going to make sense of various philosophical thought experiments, various uh, applications in cosmology and so forth, that, that you need to be able to take into account this kind of indexical self-locating information in something roughly like that. Well, way. And so th this is where many people's intuitions pull up short here with this argument, because the, 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 our discovery that we exist now at this point in human history is not the same thing as our having been randomly selected from a larger population of possible people. You know, it seems like you can't really say, or this is this at least this is the place that people tend to get off the ride here. It seems that you can't really say that if humanity has a far future, I'd be unlikely to find myself alive right now because the fact that I find myself alive right now is what's motivating this whole analysis. I mean, I'm alive right now whether or not Doomsday will come in in a hundred years or a billion years. I exist under both conditions. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I I I think that ultimately this this doomsday argument is 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 very problematic. I, I'm not. I don't particularly want to endorse it. But let let me, for the sake of our conversation, step into the role of the advocate of the doomsday argument to say see if I can say something more right. to at least make it not a completely crazy assumption that you should reason this way. So. Let's consider a slightly a, a, a different thought experiment where maybe there are a hundred rooms and one person in each room and they are dark inside, but they are maybe on the outside painted, 90% of the rooms are painted black and 10% are painted white. And you find yourself in one of these rooms and you have to guess, are you in a black paint room or a white painted room? And you think probably, uh, well, 90% of us are in black painted rooms, uh, maybe with 90% probability, 
I'm in a black painted room. And in, in fact, you could run sort of betting arguments suggesting that this would be this this would be the correct odds for people to assign. Then, then you can consider a variation of this where instead of them being there at the same time, just spread out in space, that they kind of pop into existence one after another in time. So imagine an empty world with just one room. And you know, the first day there is somebody pop born into that room, uh, and then they are killed, and another person is born into that room on, on day two. And say on 90% of the days, the room is black on the outside and 10% of the days it's white inside. And you find yourself having been born into this world. You're in this room, you know, you will exist for one day. You know that in total, there will have been a hundred people, then the world ends. And you can't see which color your room is because it's all dark and it's only painted on the outside. I mean, you have to guess. Again, it seems like you probably should accord odds that correspond to the fraction of people who are in a certain type of room. Mm -hmm. Again, betting odds would seem to suggest this. It certainly seems better to say that it's 90% chance that your room is black than that there is 50% chance. Like a greater fraction of people will be right if they guess they're in a black room than otherwise. And uh, yeah, so then you get like at least closer to the situation with the, the doomsday argument, right? Because here you have a number of people coming into existence at different points in time. The, the key remaining difference, I think, is that in the thought experiment I just described, the total number of people is fixed. There's going to be 100 people in total. Uh, whereas in the case of the doomsday argument, the total number is uncertain. So there'll either be, well, a, a small number of people, 200 billion in, in, in the, the version I described, or 200 trillion. And and it might be that that makes a, an important difference. That that's kind of where you want to jump off the uh, the bandwagon. So how do you view the simulation argument as being stronger than the doomsday argument? Well, I view it as being stronger in in a few ways, but particularly with respect to this feature of it not involving different number people. So so the the place where this type of reasoning enters into the simulation argument is only in one particular place. And this is when you have got to the conclusion that on the third proposition, remember, there are many more simulated people than there are non-simulated people. So, so far, no weird anthropic reasoning. But then to go from that to the claim that, therefore, we should think we are probably one of the simulated ones in the majority rather than one of the rare, exceptional, non-simulated people. That step requires this kind of anthropic Mm -hmm. reasoning. Uh, but it doesn't require applying this to hypotheses stipulating different numbers of people. So in both of these cases, there is X number of simulated people and a much smaller number Y of non-simulated people. The only question is how should you, what, what probability should you assign to you being in either of these two groups? So that seems more similar to one of these earlier thought experiments I described where the total number of people is fixed than it does to the doomsday argument where the total number of people depends on which hypothesis is true. Right, right. I'm not sure that that's kind of, well, either understandable, much less convincing in this brief form, but but I think that that is a fairly deep difference between these two applications of anthropic reasoning that makes the application in the case of the simulation argument a lot less Mm -hmm. problematic. Do you take the, uh, this is your own argument, do you take it seriously? If I gave you an opportunity to wager money in this world, whether it be real or simulated, on the prospect of us living in a simulation right now, 
would you place a very large bet that we are? I take it seriously, yes. I mean, I'd make a distinction, by the way, between the simulation argument and the simulation hypothesis. So the simulation argument is just that one of these three propositions is true that I described. Right. In itself, it's agnostic as to which one or how you should allocate probability between them. Uh, and then the simulation hypothesis is specifically the claim that the third proposition is true, that we are all in a simulation. Yeah. But I, I take both the simulation argument, and that seems sound to me. So I take that seriously. I mean, I also take this third disjunct, the third possibility, the simulation hypothesis. I also take that seriously. I, I tend to kind of punt on the question of exactly what probability I assign to it. But is, is it some middling probability? Would you put it more like a coin toss or would you put it better than chance or, or far less than chance? I just say a, a non-insignificant probability for the purposes of our conversation. But is that because you, you actually don't feel you know what level of credence you give it or you don't want to, to be on record saying I would bet half my net worth because I'm fairly confident? It's some, some mixture between the two. I think in particular, if, if I say, suppose I gave some, yeah, so there are many things that come into it, but like, so, so I gave precise probability number. It, it's also the kind of thing that maybe, uh, yeah, would be quoted a lot right. and maybe right. taken out of context and people might infer more than I meant to imply and so on and so forth. So okay. I, I've been a bit coy about that traditionally. All right. Well, I, I won't press you, at least in, not in this part of the simulation. Mm -hmm. So I guess let's, in the time remaining, let's go to your, this third paper, Where Are They?, which deals with the prospect of, of extraterrestrial life and advanced extraterrestrial life that should be populating the galaxy, if it, in fact it's out there, it would seem. And this question, you know, where, where is everyone? Perhaps it was asked earlier, but uh, Enrico Fermi is credited as the author of it. I mean, the conclusion of this paper is also another, uh, an arresting one, which is, I think you start by saying, you know, if we find life on Mars, um, you know, multicellular life or, and, and certainly anything more complicated than that, or elsewhere in the cosmos, that is very bad news for us because it would suggest that we are doomed. And you, and you arrive at this by considering the implications of a, an idea that, that Robin Hansen uh, who, who's a previous podcast guest, calls the great filter. Perhaps you can summarize this argument. Why would, if the New York Times publishes tomorrow that we have found strange bacteria in our, our Martian soil samples that are clearly not Earth-derived, why would uh, this be the death knell of, of the species? Well, the, yeah, maybe not the death knell, but it would seem maybe an update towards uh, it being more likely that our own prospects are limited. So, so the, the background here is this Fermi observation that we have seen no sign of any extraterrestrial life at all, let alone any kind of space colonizing extraterrestrial life. And yet we know that there are a lot of planets out there and ones that look more or less that, like they should be habitable. And uh, we therefore can infer that between the existence of some suitable planet of which there are billions within the part of the universe from which in principle technologically mature life would have been able to reach our planet or make their existence known Be between the existence of a planet and and the stage of development where they actually start this process of uh, spreading through the uh, galaxy and beyond in ways that would be perceptible to us there must be some one or more highly improbable steps 
because you start with billions of germination points and we see zero of them have reached close to us where we could actually observe them. So one or more of these development steps must be very improbable. Now we can distinguish two possibilities. Either this great filter, this great improbability lies behind us in our evolutionary past so that maybe we made it through or life on earth made it through some improbable step. Uh, or uh, the second possibility is this great filter lies in our future. And that at some point between where we are now and the point where we spread through the galaxy and beyond, there is some very improbable step. It, it, it could also be that there are steps both behind us and ahead of us. But in at least one of these places, there's got to be some great improbability. And so at the moment, we don't know. Uh, we hope the improbability is behind us in, in that if it's behind us, then there is no particular reason to think there would have to be an improbability ahead of us. And so that then means we might have pretty good prospects of becoming a space colonizing super civilization. Mm -hmm. And indeed, there are many plausible candidate places in our past where some enormous improbability might have been involved. Maybe getting from a lifeless planet to even having simple replicators, maybe that's just vastly improbable. Maybe you need gazillions of planets rattling around for, for billions of years before, by chance, a large number of molecules bump into one another in just the right way to create a simple replicator. That, that, that's a candidate. Uh, or it could maybe be a little bit uh, later in evolutionary development, maybe in the step from prokaryotic to eukaryotic life, which, it, which took a very long time, one, more than one and a half billion years here on Earth. Maybe that's just radically improbable. And maybe that's what accounts for the absence of any sighting of extraterrestrials. But now, if we did read in the New York Times that we had discovered independently evolved life on Mars, e even some fairly primitive life, maybe some like extinct algae or something, mm. then that would cut out a number of the places where the great improbability could be. Like, because if within our own solar system, moderately complex life had evolved twice independently of one another, then that would be strong evidence against the claim that the great improbability was at the beginning of the evolutionary trajectory. Like if, if you had, suppose you got to like squirrel-like life twice right. just in our solar system, then clearly that doesn't seem that hard. There'd be many, many planets all through the universe where you would have gotten to squirrel-like life. And so that then would remove the number of possible places the great filter could be if it's in our past and therefore shift probability mass to the great filter being ahead of us, which then would be bad news for our future prospects. Right, and we and we we spent a lot of time talking about one possible great filter, which could be a black ball pulled from the the urn of invention. Which, in this case, all technological civilizations, for some reason, would find. Yeah, some kind of technologically mandated destructive scenario is is one candidate. I mean, it would have to have certain characteristics. So, for it really to work as a great filter, it it wouldn't just has to have to be the case that many civilizations that reach that stage go extinct, or even 90% of mm. them. It, like it would have to almost invariably destroy a civilization that reaches that stage. So if it's a technology, it, it will have to be a kind of technology that you would in, invariably discover at some point before you had spread through the universe, like a very general purpose. And more or less, also a technology that that would destroy you, even if you had your act together as a civilization. Like, think of all possible weird ways civilizations could be structured. Like, you know, in one planet, maybe one world religion has taken over with a strange set of dogmas. On another, the environmentalists have had great success. 
a third you have it splintered into 10,000 warring factions like a fourth they use genetic engineering to make themselves wise and benevolent for 10,000 years before proceeding with technology so to really have a very strong filter you would have to have some kind of technological step maybe that would afflict all of these different uh, civilizational trajectories mm. equally I, I think that we should mention something here which could be confounding our listeners with respect to the the expectation of seeing intelligent life out there and it relates to this the vast time we know the galaxy has existed and the the relatively short period of time it would take a highly technological civilization to colonize the galaxy i mean so, so you uh, you put this at something like you know you generously this would take at most something like 20 million years. And 20 million years sounds like a long time, but in the context of vast time, it's not that long. And we, you know, we would expect to see a galaxy teeming with, with self-replicating you know, machines uh, that have just spread more or less everywhere. Yeah, so our planet is not very unusual at all in terms of its formation date. That is, there are many other Earth-like planets that, that got started like a couple of billion years earlier than our planet. And there will be other ones that will only start to form uh, out of their, their sun's gas cloud a billion years into the future. And so we are kind of a very average planet in that respect. And so there would be many other possible germination points for life, which got started billion, that had like a billions of years head start compared to us. And, and if, 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 they, if their evolution had a significant chance of producing space colonizing life, then they would have ample time to have uh, you know colonized not just their 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 galaxy, but in, indeed to to colonize other galaxies as well, uh, even if they could just travel at like one percent of the speed of light or something mm -hmm. like that. And we have reason to think a mature civilization could travel quite a lot faster than that. So. Um... Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's a, it's a fascinating way to come at this issue of our own prospects. We're talking about extraterrestrial life and, and not its potential effect upon us, but just the, the way in which its absence or apparent absence or, you know, presence, if found, changes our probability calculus with respect to our own long-term survival. Yeah, there are a number of these puzzle pieces. In fact, we've talked about a few of them like over the last hour or so. So yes, this uh, great filter, Fermi paradox thing, the simulation argument, I think is an important puzzle piece, like some other ideas. The doomsday argument, if, if it is sound, would be an important puzzle piece, but maybe that argument is unsound, but maybe the reason why it's unsound would itself give us further clues. So we have a lot of the so, so some people have this view that, well, the far future, you know, you could just believe anything. We have no way of knowing. It's easy. You could just make up your favorite story. And that's, I actually think there are a number of constraints about that, what we can coherently believe. And it, it's hard to find even one way of picturing the world that kind of meets all of these constraints. But that despite having various clues here, we are still at the fairly fundamental level in the dark. Like, I think we are still oblivious to one or probably several crucial considerations that, that would radically, if, if, if we came to understand them, would radically change our picture of the world and our place within it or our scheme of priorities. Well, let's see, in the remaining minutes, let's just touch briefly on superintelligence and the prospect of 
developing artificial general intelligence. Because one thing I find mystifying about this, but I'll just briefly summarize my involvement with this. I went to this the, the first conference in Puerto Rico where I met you and, and many people who had been thinking about this problem for a while. And many people there also seemingly disposed to deny the significance of the problem. And the problem is of the prospect that is, if we continue to make progress in developing AI on the assumption that intelligence is substrate independent, and I think we have every reason to make that assumption, we will one day find ourselves in the presence of intelligent machines that are more intelligent by you know, any relevant standard than we are. And, you know, in the, in the extreme condition, they will become the agents of their own improvement or, the, or the, the agents that build the next generation of intelligent machines. And then this process could get away from us. And you, perhaps more than anyone, have spelled out all the ways in which it might get away from us and how the space of all possible general intelligences is surely bigger than the space of intelligences that are aligned with our interests in a durable way, which you know we're in the we find ourselves in the presence of machines that have godlike qualities, and we can always say, "Wait, wait, wait! That's not what we meant." Can you correct that? Come back over here. This is we're not happy with what's what the changes you're introducing in our world. The prospect is of, of building machines that either may be totally oblivious to those concerns because they're so much grander than we are in every sense or they they could be totally callous to those concerns and you know we we could stand in relationship to them the way chickens stand in relationship to us and my experience in the last couple of years in talking about this i you know i gave a ted talk about this again largely influenced by your book and i've been to i didn't go to this last meeting in puerto rico unfortunately but i you know i, I went to the meeting uh, a year back in asilomar uh, and you know, I've been talking about this with people who imagine that they are very close to the data here, but who are profoundly skeptical that this is worth thinking about at all. The line that, you know, worrying about artificial general intelligence is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars summarizes the level of dismissal of this. I guess just two questions for you. One is, have we made in your view, any progress in getting this view taken seriously? And why do you f think it is so hard for people to recognize that their dismissal of, I mean, in my experience, the dismissal of this concern, really without exception, relies on obviously bad analogies and pseudo-arguments. I mean, I, I, this is something I spoke about with Stuart Russell, you know, when he was on the podcast, just that the level of, of reasoning that one gets, or non-reasoning that one gets from the opponents of this concern, is fairly astonishing to encounter in very smart people. I don't know if you share that perception, but it's, it's just been amazing to fight this particular culture war and uh, encounter supreme confidence married to you know, not even an attempt at an argument in many cases. Now that I've whinged about that experience, uh, you get, please give me your view of the current situation. Well, I think it's changed a lot, even just compared to a few short years ago. There is now a subfield of AI safety researchers working on this. 
in a number of players. I mean, we have one group here, the Future of Humanity Institute, with like joint research seminars with DeepMind, or like groups in other places, different universities. Uh, OpenAI has a whole bunch of. So I, I I feel that some of these earlier dismissive attitudes that greeted these efforts, say five years ago, uh, have have faded away right. to a significant extent. It's not to say that every prominent AI researcher is, is now really excited about this, but it kind of has achieved some level of legitimacy as this is one little thing that some people might specialize in, and it's like a reasonable thing for some people to research. And I think it's like a combination of, of efforts, maybe like your, your efforts and others out there, like making the case. And on the one hand, on, on the second hand, some early work actually being done to show how you can do research on this. Actually, there are concrete research products and and then and, and smart people kind of working on it. And then on the, the third hand or the prehensile tail, as it were, uh, the progress that's just been made in AI in general, like it seems to be on the move. It, it may be the, the rate of advance in, in machine learning is such that it seems perhaps less crazy to start to think ahead than, than it would if, if things were moving so slowly that one thinks it would be like over a century before it would get anywhere. So I think these, these three factors have combined to making it a, 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 like a more, slightly more mainstream thing to think about. But I mean, you could still make the case that it's very far from where it should be, that it is still a very niche occupation and niche concern out of all the things that people are uh, thinking about and spending their time on. Yeah. What, what fraction of our resources on this planet are we spending on this? I don't know, more than one billionth of the resources, but I don't think it's one millions anyway in general i think that our our kind of prioritization scheme as a species doesn't necessarily match any notion of the objective importance of different things we could be doing <laughs> that that summarizes most of our problems right there uh well listen nick it's been absolutely fascinating to have you on the podcast uh, i i love talking to you about all these things and they're there's so much more to talk about so i i hope we have round two at some point where we can get into metaethics and any other further progress we make or don't make on the, the AI front. So please come back one of these days. Indeed. Yeah. Thanks again. Uh, that was fun. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast, or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, like my Ask Me Anything episodes, as well as the bonus questions from many of these interviews. You'll also get advanced tickets to my live events. You'll find all of these things and more at samharris.org. And thank you for supporting the show. Listeners like you make it possible.